why? We'll find out about this little-known but important battle from author Patrick Brennan, author of Secessionville Assault on Charleston, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. My guest today is Patrick Brennan, Civil War author, and particularly of the book Secessionville, Assault on Charleston. And true to my promise, we will get uh, to that battle. I'm trying to remember, I got a copy of this book when it came out, mid-1990s. I believe my mother sent it to me because I was working on my uh, manuscript that would become uh, the book on the Army of the Ohio. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to encourage me to, to get it printed and quit goofing around. And she sent me uh, this book with a clipping from the Chicago Tribune saying, look, this guy has a full-time job as a musician, and then he's got a book out. So I didn't like you from that day, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I did get the fire under me and finally got all for the regiment out. Well, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> it did help, and I did. but I read the book and enjoyed it, and I had the opportunity to go on... Uh, uh, as, as a lecturer on a, uh, a cruise, which is a great gig if you can get it, uh, on a Civil War cruise along the Atlantic coast. And there we approached the outskirts of Charleston from, from the ocean side. And uh, since we were doing that, I took the book along and read it and used the maps. And I have to say, Secessionville is, is, is one complex piece of terrain. Very much so. Uh, the, the, Give give us some background on what what was this campaign about? When did it happen? Start from the beginning and tell us a little bit about it. Well, it happened. I mean, the germs of it were you know right after Bull Run when they were trying to decide 
when the Navy was trying to decide whether they were going to get a deep water port to support uh, the blockading squadron. And they had picked three or four places and, and settled on Port Royal. And so organize, and they knew that they would need an army to support, you know, they couldn't just come in and, you know, bomb the Confederates away from there and not have some kind of uh, infantry support. So they put together an army, and uh, it's about 12,000 men. And, and you know, there's a great story of this, you know, it was the largest flotilla ever uh, put together by the, by the American um, military. Uh, up to that point, I, I, I think it was 72 ships. And of course, as soon as they got to Cape Hatteras, you know, blew the ships all over the place. And they finally reconvened, and there's the great, you know, picture of the ships sailing in a big circle in Port Royal Harbor, bombing one fort and then bombing on the other. And of course, that didn't happen, but it, you know, it looked good in a painting. And then the infantry came ashore, and there really wasn't much to do at that point other than, you know, of, uh, fortify Hilton Head. And they, they took up the, uh, Beaufort on Port Royal Island in December. And then there was kind of arguing going on about what to do next. Um, eventually, uh, the, the commander, the infantry commander, was replaced by David Hunter and a fellow named Henry Benham who had uh, made a name for himself by uh, by getting William Rosecrans very angry at him in the West Virginia campaign of 1861. And he was accused, of course, of drunkenness and everything. They didn't have anything to do with Hunter because his department had basically uh, disappeared out west. So they sent them down there to replace this Thomas Sherman. Just as Quincy Gilmore had devised a way to reduce Fort Pulaski. So this is April of 62. And, of course, Gilmore was very successful with that, and Hunter and uh, Benham had showed up just a few weeks before that and, of course, claimed you know, all the, uh, all the uh, credit for it. So they redu- they've closed the Savannah River, and they come back to Hilton, and they're like, they're like well, what are we going to do next? Well, Hunter had made the remark that he wasn't going to rest until the uh, Stars and Stripes flew over Sumter. So, of course, the next big target in the theater was Charleston, and that's what prompted the Secessionville campaign. Now, there was a, a very, very good general there who had come down with the initial uh, infantry force named Isaac Stevens, who eventually dies at Chantilly. Anyone who's gone to see the Kearney Monument at Chantilly in that, one, that little two-acre park there in the middle of the mall, they see Kearney, and then underneath they see Stevens. Stevens was actually, I, I think he was commanding the Ninth Corps when he was killed there. And he had an idea of going inland uh, uh, much closer to Hilton Head and then ta- and following the railroad north and taking Charleston from that way. But Benham, who uh, was described as, you know, an impertinent ass, you know, they all kinds of different names for this guy, he wanted to do it his way, and his concept was to uh, march an army across some of the barrier islands, and then land an army and land the other half of the army on the Stono uh, at a place called Battery Island. March across the island, take Fort Johnson, which would command Charleston, and then that would render Charleston uh, untenable. It would cut off the harbor. It would cut off Fort Sumter. 
And that's basically what the uh, Secessionville campaign was. They landed at Battery Island on June 1st. Um, of course, there was a huge rainstorm, as there usually is in South Carolina that time of the year. It slowed down the other half of the Army that was marching across some of the barrier islands. So um, the, uh, the brigades that had landed couldn't do anything at first. Um, meanwhile, the Confederates had all kinds of command problems. Pemberton, John Pemberton was down there, and no one trusted him because he was from Pennsylvania. And uh, they had, to, because there had been Shiloh and because of seven days, that, that was considered something of a backwater anyway, so a lot of troops were being stripped from there. So by the time the Federals got it together, they severely outnumbered the Confederates on the island, and the attack was was made on by about 6,000 troops against probably about 1,500 Confederates. But the Confederates had built up a huge uh, ring of forts and, uh, and trenches across the entire island, and typical of those barrier islands, there's all kinds of inlets, and there's... Uh, they don't want you to call them swamps or marshes because they're fresh water. And the tides would come in and the tides would go out. And when the tides would go out, the marshes would be what they called pluff mud. If you stuck your foot in it, your shoe would stay in there. You couldn't get, you couldn't get your shoe out. Your foot would come out, your shoe would stay. It's very sticky. And, of course, you're, you're there in early June. There's mosquitoes. There's uh, fleas. There, there's all kinds of... Uh, uh, marsh diseases that are associated with that sort of thing. And the Confederates barely have to defend the island. Nature is pretty much... Yes, uh, exactly. There were a, lot, a lot of guys got very sick while they were there. And the Confederates, of course, were used to being there, so they were kind of immune to that sort of thing. And it just so happened that with the, the reconnaissance that Benham had done was so bad was that they ended up attacking the fort, which was at Secessionville, um, which was basically on on the squeeze point of the peninsula, and that he even if he had taken the fort, he would have basically only taken a peninsula that had a footbridge that went farther north onto the greater part of James Island. He had no idea that his flanks were being forced in by the marshes on both sides. So he's going onto a peninsula. He's marching into a trap. Yeah, exactly. And the only way off is is back the way he came. Exactly. Or over this single footbridge. And, of course, he hasn't been, he, he wasn't allowed to make this attack either. Uh, Hunter's wife had shown up. And so Hunter left and went back down to Hilton, had to have a big party on board uh, Samuel Francis DuPont's flagship. And uh, and so Benham was there, and he used a, kind of some nebulous language in, uh, in his uh, command to you know, look to the security of his camps, and the, the Confederates had an eight-inch Columbia at at, uh, at uh, what they called the Tower Battery, which eventually became, you know, Fort Lamar, which was the, the fort that the, the Federals attacked. And the Columbia could reach the outer edges of the uh, of the Federal camps, which were about a mile uh, a mile to the uh, west. And uh, Colonel Lamar, Colonel Thomas Lamar, was a very aggressive man. He didn't like the idea that, you know, the Yankees were on his island. And Pemberton had to keep sending him notes, you know, you know, quit being so aggressive, save your, you know, save, save your gunpowder. But 
Lamar was always getting into these uh, into these scraps with the with the federal artillery, and uh, he had four other pieces. There are two eighteen pounders, two twenty four pounders. I'm fairly sure of that there might have been one less piece. I'm not exactly sure of how many pieces were in the, the fort at the time, but the fort was only about one hundred twenty five yards. The face of it was about one hundred twenty five yards. It was built. It looked like an M. Uh, the, the two wings of the M line the marshes, and then the uh, the angle of the M tended to force anyone who was attacking it towards the middle, right into the mouth of the Columbia. So it was a, it was a very very strong uh, uh, piece of defensive work at a very very strong piece of terrain. And the size of the force attacking it, it's just a few regiments. Well, it was a total of six regiments attacked the fort head-on, and two to three more regiments were advancing to the left of of, of the regiments that attacked the fort head-on, and they thought they were they were going to come past the flank of the attacking uh, forces and walk right into the fort. They had no idea that there was this large marsh that completely cut them off from it. So by the time they turned to attack the fort, they came upon this marsh. They were still 125 yards from the fort. 3rd New Hampshire was the first uh, unit in line, which, by the way, is a great regimental. Um, And they lined up and started shooting and really, you know, just blasted the right flank of that fort and forced a lot of men off the guns. But then the 4th Louisiana showed up and uh, was able to counter them. And uh, they were, they, they of course, weren't able to cross the marsh. It was impossible to cross the marsh. And in the meantime, um, uh, Johnson Haygood had uh, organized a secondary force that came up behind the 3rd New Hampshire and uh, the 3rd Rhode Island Heavy Artillery, which had been turned into infantry for it. And the 3rd Rhode Island turned and attacked Haygood, and Haygood stopped them, and then they, they brought in a bunch of artillery to burn the 3rd New Hampshire and ripped them up pretty quickly. It took about 100 casualties in maybe 10, 15 minutes. It, it, Haygood is a Confederate leader. Yes, Johnson Haygood. He eventually, he eventually became a brigadier in the Army of Northern Virginia. They called it Haygood's Brigade. There's something very interesting in South Carolina at the beginning of the war. Everyone wanted to be the first South Carolina. Right. So they would say the first South Carolina Haygood's. You know, they would, they would designate it by the name of the, the colonel who was commanding. And he, uh, I think he might have been a state senator after the war. He was, he was in command, or he, he was, he was the one who supposedly, uh, a year later at Battery Wagner told, said, you know, let's bury Shaw with his, uh, his, his use of a harsh word. His use of a harsh word, yeah. He claimed he never said it, but there were a number of people who said he did say it. And meanwhile, in the fort, there was ba- the fort was basically command. There was there was a uh, an artillery battalion in the fort that was uh, uh, reinforced by a hundred men who were just supposed to show from the 24th South Carolina, who were just supposed to show up and uh, help them build, make the fort stronger. And then there was uh, uh, the first South Carolina battalion and the ninth South Carolina battalion. The first South Carolina battalion was mostly men from Charleston, so they were basically fighting inside of the city. 
the 9th South Carolina Battalion was from the PD District up by North Carolina, and they were a rougher sort. They were the first ones in the, the fort that countered the uh, initial attack from the 8th Michigan. They'd actually made it up on the wall and into the fort and took and, and uh, uh, tore up uh, much of uh, Lamar's men who were commanding the two guns closest to where that breakthrough happened, which was on the left flank. And then following them was the uh, 28th Massachusetts and the 7th, the, the 7th uh, Connecticut. 7th Connecticut came up first. At that point, the 8th Michigan covered the entire front of the fort, so the, the 7th Connecticut tried to come up on their left flank and ended up running right into this marsh. Half the unit went into the marsh. And then they were immediately followed by the 28th Massachusetts, which eventually became uh, part of the Irish Brigade. They were very poorly commanded and uh, poorly officered, poorly trained. They came up, got under fire. Half of them ran into the 7th uh, Connecticut. And as they got pounded by that uh, Columbiad and the 24-pounder that was on the right flank of the fort, they just turned and ran. And amazingly, Horatio Wright, who was a brigade commander of the force that went up the 2nd Peninsula uh, with a uh, third North, the Third New Hampshire, did the very unusual thing of relieving the Colonel of the 28th Michi- of the 28th Massachusetts on the field mm. because he was evidently so drunk that, that uh, he had just completely lost control of his men. And then the second wave that came in was led by the 79th New York, the Highlanders, the famed Highlander uh, regiment. Now I'm I'm looking at uh, some of the maps that you have in the book that, that shows very graphically how the the peninsula just narrows down mm-hmm. to where the tower battery is defending uh, a, a mere neck of land, and so your publisher did let you down by not having a, a, a ground scale on these. They're lands. absolutely correct. Um, how how wide across is the peninsula where the tower battery? 125 yards. So so at uh, I'm looking for example at the 6 a.m. map and. And the maps are are excellent in terms of showing what's going on, uh, but for that detail, uh, one, two, three, four, five regiments, uh, five Union regiments are able to deploy two or three abreast at the wide part of the peninsula. But as they get down in to where the tower battery is, you you'd have a hard time squeezing one of them through there. Yeah, there, uh, the elements of the Eighth Michigan were, on, were all across the front of the uh, fort. And, and easily one regiment could block that entire front. Sure. So if you had a bird's eye view, which, of course, uh, the Union general doesn't have, uh, you'd say this is just insane. Yes. This kind of attack. The recon was, was, was horrible. The recon they did basically got up to that first hedge and never went any farther north than that first hedge. That was on June 10th or 11th. They sent out a party to kind of check out the that part of the area and they just they had no idea that there was this huge marsh separating that area from the rest of the island to the north so so and as you say the third new hampshire and the other flank troops march up the union along the left flank and go past the fort but they can't get to it yeah they can't get to and they get hammered well we'll take another short break and find out what about the aftermath of this uh, attempt to capture Richmond in 1862 at Secessionville. Uh, we'll see how that worked out when we come back in just a minute with Patrick Brennan and myself, Jerry Prokopovich, on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 